Welcome to another edition of Fair Territory, coming to you from my hotel room in Seattle. I am here for the All-Star Game, for the Home Run Derby, for all of the festivities. Always a fun couple of days. One of my favorite times of the year, of course, see a lot of friends, see some cool people, see some great players, all good. But when it comes to the All-Star Game, there is an issue every single year, and I want to talk about it again. You know what it is? It's the plague of withdrawals. Now, some of this... There's nothing you can do about it. Some of these guys are just flat hurt. Aaron Judge, injured. Mike Trout, Jordan Alvarez, injured. You can go down the list. At the same time, it bothers me that every year we are talking more, it seems, about the players who aren't here than, in some cases, the players who are. And there are some great players here. Shohei Otani is here. He's not going to pitch, but he is here. Ronald Acuna Jr., here. National League MVP at this point. Randy Arozarena, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Garrett Cole, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman. I can go right down the list. Corbin Carroll, the great rookie from the Diamondbacks. You can name 100 guys. Well, actually, I can't name 100 guys, but you can almost name 100 because 77 All-Stars have been named to this point. That's nearly 10% of the Major League population. So let's look at the withdrawals and let's talk about some of these players and who they are and who's not here, and who actually is replacing them. The American League withdrawals first. Jordan Alvarez, I mentioned him. He's the big one, in my mind, with Trout. Emmanuel Classe, the Guardians' closer. Kevin Gossman. Shane McClanahan might have started the game. And Framber Valdez also might have started the game. National League withdrawals. Also, a lot of good names here. Marcus Stroman. Dansby Swanson, two from the Cubs. Devin Williams from the Brewers, Spencer Strider, one of the great pitchers in the game, Clayton Kershaw, of course, a legend, and Bryce Elder, those who are not. Start with the American League replacements. Here they are. Carlos Estevez, the Angels closer, who is quite adamant about wanting to be here. Wander Franco deserved to be here from the start. George Kirby from the Mariners, along with Julio Rodriguez, two hometown choices, no problem there. Pablo Lopez, inconsistent for the Twins, but decent numbers. Jordan Romano, certainly deserving the Blue Jays' closer. Kyle Tucker has been a really good player for a long time. Can't question that. All good with these guys. I have no problem with really any of them. You could say some are more deserving than others, but we can say that every year about basically any all-star team. All right, here are the National League replacements. Another list that we will take a look at right here. David Bednar, the Pirates' closer, all-star last year, the second straight for him. Corbin Burns, former Cy Young winner. Alex Cobb having a nice year for the Giants. Craig Kimbrell, one of the great closers of all time. Gerardo Podomo, uh, this is one that Mets fans are going to take exception with, and rightly so. Lindor has outperformed him. Kodai Senga, who would have thought he'd be the Mets representative as a pitcher over Scherzer and Verlander? But that is where we are. Okay, I'm not going to demean any of the replacements or demean any of the All-Stars for that matter. These are all good players, and it's cool that they're here. The one problem I have with the way the game is right now it's pretty simple. It's a guy who isn't here. It's Ellie De La Cruz. And you might say, Ken, what are you talking about? The guy's played 30 games. 30 games in the big leagues. Yeah, I know that. He's also, outside of Acuna and Otani right now, the most electrifying player in the sport. This event is a showcase for baseball. It is an entertainment vehicle. It is a promotional vehicle. It is something where you want to get as many eyeballs on your players in your sport as possible. Now, I admit I come at this with a certain bias. I'm the field reporter for Fox. We want people to watch the game. 
But my goodness, if you're a fan of baseball, you want to see Ellie Dela Cruz. I know there's a process in place and the player ballot is used to select replacement position players and all that. Yeah, I know. Baseball needs to figure this out better in the future. Needs to figure out how to get a guy like Dela Cruz to the game. And if you're a Reds fan, you might be saying, he's not even our best rookie. We've got Spencer Steer. We've got Matt McClain. We've got Andrew Abbott. Yes, all those guys have had tremendous years. But at the same time, none of them is as compelling to watch as Ellie Dela Cruz. Ellie Dela Cruz needs to be in Seattle, period and paragraph. All right, moving on. Last night, or I should say Sunday night, the draft. Major League draft is always a fascinating event. The amateur draft I'm talking about. I am not someone who covers this extensively. I'll be the first to admit it, and I don't go as deeply as Baseball America, as ESPN with Kylie McDaniel and Jeff Passan, or at The Athletic as deeply as Keith Law. So really, I only pay attention almost from an outside perspective, almost from a fan's perspective. But let's go through the top five picks because there's one point I want to make about this group. You see it there. Paul Skeens goes number one to Pittsburgh. He's supposedly the best college pitcher coming out of the draft in 20 years. Dylan Cruz, the other star from LSU, goes to the Nationals. Max Clark, a bit of a surprise. High school outfielder to the Tigers. Wyatt Langford from Florida goes to the Rangers. And Walter Jenkins, another high school outfielder to the Twins. The point I want to make about the top five is that I am glad the Pirates took Skeens. There was all this talk, as there always is before the draft, about uh, they might go below slot with a high school kid, then use the money later in the draft. This is a strategy the Pirates took just two years ago with Henry Davis. They signed him below slot, about $2 million below slot, and then picked up some other players and were able to pay them more due to the way the draft is structured. This year, the Pirates were in a similar position. And Henry Davis, by the way, looks like he's going to be a really good player. Not like the Pirates cheated themselves there. But with Skeens, supposedly the best pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg coming out of college, here was a situation where the Pirates had a chance to grab an ace. And my concern was that they were going to do the cutesy, cheap thing and go below slot in the first with the first pick and then use the money later, as they did the year they drafted Henry Davis number one. That was in 2021. They didn't do that. They took the best player. It's a risk. It's always a risk taking a pitcher. But if you're the Pirates, you're a low-revenue team, you don't spend money, your chance to get an ace is this way with the number one pick of the draft. That's how they got Gary Cole, right? So this, to me, was a wise decision by the Pirates. I thought they did well. The other interesting thing I want to point to with the draft on Sunday night was the Mariners situation. The Mariners were in great shape. They had three of the top 30 picks. You can see them right there. Colt Emerson, he went at 22. Johnny Farmello at 29. Ty Pete at 30. Those are all high school hitters. Now, high school hitters are a bit of a gamble, like any draft pick, actually. But you have to wait longer for them at the very least. But these guys all have upside. The Mariners are very confident that they can develop them into big-time players. The Mariners had these picks because of a couple different things. The 22nd pick, that was their normal first rounder. The 29th pick was the one they got for Julio Rodriguez winning Rookie of the Year after being a highly rated prospect and making the opening day roster. That's the prospect promotion incentive program, so they get the extra pick for that. And then the 30th was the competitive balance pick that was for being a small market team. 
So the Mariners had a bounty here, and they didn't play it safe. They went for high upside guys, and we'll see how it plays out. But just a very interesting scenario for Seattle in this situation where they had three high picks because of a variety of factors. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the segment every week in which I go inside a story I've written or inside something going on in the baseball world that I believe is worthy of further discussion. Oh, there's a topic worthy of further discussion this week. It's the one that everyone at the All-Star Game is talking about. It is whether Shohei Otani will be traded. As I said on Fox on Saturday, this is something that non-Angels fans want to see happen. The fans of 29 other teams. But it's not something that, at this moment, I envision happening. In fact, it would be a major upset if it happened. And we'll get into that. But let's first explore the idea of Otani getting traded and what he could mean for different teams. And I want to show you just how some rotations would look if Otani was a part of these teams' rotations. Let's start with the Yankees and Dodgers. The Yankees. Otani... Cole and Rodon. That's your top three. The Dodgers, Otani, Kershaw, and Urias. Not a bad top three either. Now remember, I'm talking at this moment just about the pitching aspect. Not even talking about Otani as a hitter. Of course, he would help those teams in that regard as well. Let's look at, let's look at two other teams as well. Two in the National League East. Just for fun, folks. We're just having a little fun here. The Phillies with Otani. Otani, Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler. The Braves with Otani. This one's really fun. Otani, Max Fried, and Spencer Strider. These are just top threes. Now, I'm just talking about certain teams here, but think of your favorite team that's a contender and what Otani would mean to their rotation if he was traded. How about the Orioles? How about some of these surprise teams? The Orioles, the Marlins, the Diamondbacks with Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly, the Reds. He would look great anywhere. And again, I'm just talking about the pitching aspect, not the offensive aspect. Of course, he'd look great in any lineup as well. All right, so much for our fantasies. Let's go back to reality. The reality is that your opinion about Otani being traded and whether you want him to be traded doesn't matter. My opinion about Otani wanting to be traded or needing to be traded, it doesn't matter either. The opinions of the 29 other clubs they don't matter, and I would dare say, I'm not even sure the opinion of Angels general manager Perry Manasian matters. The only opinion that matters here is the one belonging to Artie Moreno. He is the owner of the team. He has expressed a great reluctance to trade Otani, particularly when the Angels are in playoff contention. Now, you can question at this moment whether the Angels actually are in playoff contention. They've lost 9 of 10. Their playoff odds are down to about 10%. They've got injuries everywhere, Trout being, of course, foremost among them. They're five out in the wild card, but they've got the Yankees, Red Sox, and Mariners ahead of them, even before you get to the teams currently holding the wild card positions. You can certainly make the case that they're going nowhere. Now, they've got a nine-game homestand coming out of the break against the Astros, the Yankees, and the Pirates. Clearly, the Angels need to play better if they're going to consider themselves in any way, shape, or form a contender. I don't know that they'll ever be a contender this season, but Artie Moreno is going to hold on to this. Because 
if there's any chance of making the playoffs, and remember, Trout is coming back at some point. It's four to eight weeks, anywhere in that range. If they can make the playoffs, well, then the sliver of hope, and it is a sliver, that is all it is, for the Angels to re-sign Otani would expand a little bit. I don't see it happening, but if you're Artie Moreno, you don't want to trade this guy. You don't want to trade the best player, arguably, of all time. You don't want that as your responsibility. You don't want to be known as the owner who did that. I understand all that. I get it. But at the same time, let's look at what the Angels could get if they traded Otani. And this is the part where Moreno might be missing it a little bit. He certainly was missing it last year. I've said this before. We've all said it. That's when they should have traded Otani. They could have gotten the Juan Soto deal plus. How about that? That would have been pretty good for the Angels going forward. But at that time, I'm sure he's thinking maybe I can keep him. Who knows? If you trade Otani, you get some kind of bounty. I don't know what it is. I don't know exactly what it would bring. Yes, he's a rental, but he's also a pitcher and a hitter. He's two players in one. So it would be a pretty good package. The Dodgers, I could imagine, would love to get their hands on him and then have him for a couple of months before he becomes a free agent. And perfect scenario for them. All these other teams would pay big for Otani as well in a trade. If the Angels let him walk and they make him the qualifying offer and he rejects it, all they get is a draft pick between 75 and 80 in that range. That's not very good. And they will regret that. But in the meantime, Moreno will retain his sliver of hope for the postseason. He'll continue making money with Otani, sponsorships, merchandise, ticket sales, all of that. And he will not be giving up on his season and basically giving his fans nothing to watch from the deadline on out. I understand all that. That's where it is. The interesting thing is, if they collapse even further in the next two weeks, does Moreno at least consider it? And there's one other thing I want to mention here, and it's something no one is talking about, but probably we should be thinking about. Otani has a very specific routine. He has to prepare every day as a starting pitcher, and there is a routine every day a starting pitcher follows, and he also has to prepare as a hitter because he's in the lineup most every day. The Angels have helped him establish that routine over the years. He has grown comfortable there with how it has all gone about. I'm not so sure he would be so comfortable being traded to another team that would not know what he does that would not be familiar with it and it's pretty elaborate what this guy goes through on a daily basis now granted it's not rocket science any team could adapt they could listen to otani and figure it out right away but my question is and we don't know the answer to this is how comfortable would otani be if he were traded and has he expressed to moreno any concern about that aspect of his situation if you join a team as a free agent, which he will do this offseason, that's a different scenario. You have the entire spring with your new club to establish your routines, to get in sync, to get everyone on the same page. Middle of the season, it's a little different. Again, I don't know the answer to this question. Perhaps he will be asked it at All-Star Media Day, which is taking place later Monday after we tape. But that is a question I have. So as of now, no Otani trade. But we can speculate, we can fantasize, we can do whatever the heck we want. And we can also hope 
that Artie Moreno comes to his senses and does what is best for his franchise and not what is best for the next two months. All right, time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. Now, some people are going to object to my dude choice because he's only had one start since coming back from the minors, and he did it against a poor-hitting team, and he succeeded, but you might say, big deal, I want to say more. I get it. But Alec Manoa of the Blue Jays is my dude of the week. And he's my dude of the week because he went down to the minors for more than a month. Went to the lowest level. Their spring training complex. And got back to the big leagues and pitched really well against the Tigers. Yes, 28th in the league in runs per game in his first start on Friday. Six innings, one earned run. What I love in baseball, well, I love many things about baseball. One of the things I love most is when a guy hits the bottom and then comes back up, finds a way to bring back what he had lost. Manoa seemingly has done that. I know it's one start, but here's a guy who was humiliated, really. You get sent down to your spring training complex in the middle of a season with a six-plus ERA after you were third in the AL Cy Young voting the year before. That is humiliating. But... He went down, he made the adjustments he needed to, seemingly, and he came back and did what he did against the Tigers. This game is really hard. It's the first lesson I learned covering the sport from Tim Kirchin, back when we were both covering the Orioles for the Baltimore Evening and Morning Sun. He said it to me early in my first spring training. This sport is hard. You have to understand that. You have to understand how difficult it is to play this game. Well, Alec Manoa hit bottom, came back up, and here he is. Due to the week. Dork of the week. This is maybe a little bit of an unusual selection for this time of year, but it's appropriate in my mind. It's Astros owner Jim Crane. And it's Astros owner Jim Crane, not because he's run a terrible franchise. It's been a great franchise for quite some time now. And let's take the scandal out of it for a minute. They've been great even since the scandal. The reason he's Dork of the week this week is because he went without a GM from November 11th of last year when they parted with James Click to January 26th when he hired Dana Brown. In the interim, he basically ran baseball operations, craned it as the owner. He had help from assistant GM Bill Furcus, from two Hall of Famers who serve as advisors, Jeff Bagwell and Reggie Jackson. But let's look at the Astros offseason and let's see how they have done so far. These are the biggest moves they made. Jose Abreu, three years, 58.5 million, this year, 630 OPS, well below his career norm. Rafael Montero, the reliever, three years, 34.5 million, 6.57 ERA, and Michael Brantley, coming off shoulder surgery, one year, 12 million, has yet to play. That you could not have anticipated. So here are the Astros. They're in pretty good shape, actually, considering all that, considering that they've lost McCullers, Luis Garcia, and Jose Urquidy from their rotation, and have gone for long chunks of the season without Jordan Alvarez and Jose Altuve. They're 50 and 41. They're two games out in the AL West. They are actually doing fine. But there are clouds here. There are warning signs. And it really has to do with the pitching staff and the failure to supplement the starting rotation after Justin Verlander left as a free agent for the Mets. Yes, the Astros had all these great starters returning. They've also been in the postseason for something like six straight years and these guys, for the most part, have all pitched extra innings. You had to fortify this group. They did not. 
The choices they made have not worked out, at least to this point of the season. So, I know they weren't going to keep James Click, and I don't want to pound that drum any longer. They had personality differences, all kinds of differences, the GM and the owner. But you went without a GM for more than two months, and I think it's showing. Jim Crane, Dork of the Week. All right, here we go with the Grilling Ken segment. It is sponsored by Baseball Barbecue. This is the segment where I answer your questions, and let's go. Let's go right away to the first question. This comes from <laughs> Big Poppy 34 with a check mark. I don't believe this is the real Big Poppy, but whatever. The question is, should Devers be an all-star? This is a good question because it kind of strikes at the issue that the All-Star game often faces. Is it something to honor guys who had a great first half, or is it something where you want to see the absolute biggest names? Or is it some combination of both, which is what we usually end up with? Dever is certainly one of the biggest names. Signed a $300-plus million contract in the offseason, but he is not on the team. Now, the starter should be Jose Ramirez. He's not the starter, but he is the best third baseman in baseball, perhaps. Guy who's leading third baseman in the American League in OPS and in Fangraph's version of wins above replacement. He's the guy. He did not win the fan vote. Josh Young did from the Texas Rangers, a rookie. Josh Young is outperforming Rafael Devers this season. He's got the higher OPS, the higher F war. He's been a better player. Should he be in the game over Rafael Devers? If you're a Texas Rangers fan, I know your answer is yes. If you're a Red Sox fan, I imagine you're saying, who the heck is Josh Young? Well, he's a pretty good player. This is the problem with the game. This is the choice, the kind of choice that is often questioned, but it is where we are. Should Devers be an all-star? I'd love to see him here. He's not here. It's not been his best first half, but you can certainly make the case he should be in Seattle. All right, on to the next question. Let's see what we got here. This comes from Cardassia Prime, or Rick Fear, whatever his name is or her name. How many teams currently in first place do you see finishing in first place, and who overtakes the ones who don't, if any? This actually is a great question, because right now, among our division leaders, none except for the Braves has a lead of more than two and a half games, and in the NL West, the Dodgers and the Diamondbacks are tied. So the Rays, the Guardians, the Rangers, the Braves, the Reds, and the Dodgers and Diamondbacks. Those are your first place teams. Which ones do I think will not be in first place at the end of the season? It's really tough to say. The Reds are questionable. Will they hold on? Will they be able to hold up with questionable starting pitching? Depends who they add, if they add anyone at the deadline. The Rays, could they be caught by the Orioles? Well, I'm not sure that's not possible. The Guardians over the Twins? Well, I don't know how that's going to turn out. The Rangers over the Astros and the Mariners? I'm not sure how that's going to turn out. The Rangers have faded in know, the last couple of weeks. So this is why we watch the games. This is why we pay attention. The deadline will have a big effect on all of this. But the races for the division titles in five of the six divisions are really close. All right, to the final question now. What do we got? This is from Aaron Lewis. This is Aaron Lewis's actual name, it seems. Current list of your top three favorite ballparks in the majors. This is tough because I like so many. I am always partial to Camden Yards because I spent a lot of years there with the Baltimore Sun. And even after I left the Sun and when I was living in Baltimore... It is a beautiful ballpark. I was there from the moment it opened. 
it's sort of home to me. So I'm always going to have that on my top three or four, whatever you want to say. I would also put Wrigley there. And it's Wrigley over Fenway just because of the environment at Wrigley, which is always basically a cocktail party for 35,000 people. The place is a blast. Even when the Cubs are down, it's just a fun place to be. There was one year I was there on my birthday for Fox, and I was just like, you know what? If I can't be home with my family, there's no place I'd rather be on my birthday than Wrigley Field. Third, it gets tougher. I love Petco in San Diego, love AT&T in San Francisco, but I'm anxious to take another look at the former Safeco Field, T-Mobile Park, in Seattle. I haven't been here in a while, and I always loved this place when I was coming more regularly, so I'm going to hold off on my third choice until I get a better look at T-Mobile. Check out BaseballBarbecue.com for MLB-licensed grilling tools and accessories. Use code ALLSTAR to receive 20% off your order or scan the code on the screen. Coming up on Fox this week, I've got Dodgers at Mets. Quite an interesting matchup as the deadline approaches. We know the Dodgers are going to be active, trying to supplement their pitching. We don't know exactly what the Mets are going to do, and they're kind of in a funky place still. Really haven't declared themselves one way or the other. They want to contend, obviously, if they fail in the next two weeks to get it going in a more meaningful way, they may make some interesting decisions. I'm not sure it'll be as big as we thought, but we'll see if they sell or what they do exactly. All right, I want to thank everyone for watching on YouTube. You can subscribe or like us there. And of course, for all the listeners on the podcast, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Enjoy the All-Star Game. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, FT Live fam, if you're new to the party on the BetMGM Sports app, enter the promo code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for up to $1,000 back if your first bet loses. It's simple. Ready? Download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit into your newly created account. Place your first bet offer and receive up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if it loses. If the bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once the wager is settled. Gotta use the bonus code, Valve.